Hey, Sound Opinions listeners, if you support us on Patreon, you get to listen to our podcast ad-free on Patreon. listening to Sound Opinions, and this week we're talking with Mark Mothersbaugh and Jerry Casale of Devo. Plus, we bid farewell to Chris Bailey of The Saints. I'm Jim DeRogatis. And I'm Greg Cott. But first, let's review some new music from the Linda Lindas and the Regrets. is a little bit of racist sexist boy by the linda lindas uh this young and i mean young uh you know preteens to 17 the oldest 11 to 17 uh this young quartet from los angeles was on its way even before that track went viral starting in the spring of 2021 after they played that song at a uh, Los Angeles public library gig <laughs> in the middle of the pandemic. They'd already been in Amy Poehler's movie Moxie. They'd been rehearsing uh, for years, writing their own songs of Latinx and Asian-American descent. These four young women uh, just uh, were ferocious, you know, uh, taking a cue, uh, it has been said, from the Riot Girl bands of the 90s. Uh, after Racist Sexist Boy went viral, they got signed to Epitaph Records, one of your cooler uh, punk rock labels. And uh, here is the debut album, appropriately titled Growing Up. What is this young group giving us on its first full album. We're going to play a track. We're going to come back and give our opinions. This is uh, the title track, Growing Up by the Linda Lindas on Sound Opinion. That is Growing Up from the Linda Lindas, the title track from the debut album by this uh, promising young quartet. Uh, it's interesting. We've got two bands that we're going to be reviewing today, Jim, which share, I think, a similar heritage, are coming out of a similar, uh, you know, uh, culture. Uh, young women forming rock bands and growing up in public. You know, it's yeah. difficult to be yeah. putting yourself out there in such a, you know, high-level platforms and you're immediately being scrutinized. You know, are you any good? You know, can they really <laughs> yeah. play? You know, can they write songs? 
uh, I would say yes to all of the above for the Linda Lindas. There's no, you know, you don't need this kind of uh, uh, stereotypical riot girl light uh, tag that has been put on them because of the connections to Bikini Kill, you know, and sort of an edgy kind of framework. What I'm hearing here is a good uh, pop rock band, pop Mm -hmm. punk band, Mm -hmm. Um, writing good songs with hooks, um, lyrically talking about, you know, um, they're they have each other's backs, as they say in this song. You know, they're 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 talking about unity as young women growing up in the world together uh, and doing it together. Um, You know, I think it's an empowering message for for young people everywhere. We'll never cave or we'll never waver and we'll always become braver and braver. You know, I think about somebody like Taylor Swift and for whatever you said about her, uh, whatever people were saying about her when she was a teenager, she was speaking to a particular audience. You can do this too, was the message underlying a lot of the music. And I heard it myself from young women who are hearing this woman and saying, I can, you know, I can write my own songs on a guitar. Uh, you, you saw young women picking up guitars and, and starting to write songs because of that example. And I, I hear the same thing with this band. Um, I, w- I was impressed. I was not expecting the record to be as diverse as it is. You know, that bubblegum song, like uh, Talking to Myself, you know, you get that sort of bubblegum <laughs> pop, you know, aspect to you it. You really go, do. Yeah, that's kind of what I was, you know, it's Josie and the Pussycats or whatever. And that's Or cool. the sweet. Yeah, yeah. exactly. But then you look, you look at a song like Nino, which is a song about a cat. Yeah, yeah, and you, yeah. You know, you, and you've got this sort of psychedelic influence in there that's kind of cool. I was not expecting uh, those kind of things to pop up. Let me tell you, Nino is a savage cat, a killer of <laughs> mice and rats. <laughs> exactly. It's a metaphor, I believe. So, so beyond racist, sexist boy, which is a great song, by the way. I mean, talk about putting yourself uh, on the map right away with a yeah. song that speaks to a lot of issues that are happening today in terms of racism, the way young women are perceived, young girls are perceived in our culture. Uh, you've got a very diverse opening uh, album from these uh, young women, and I, I, I think, you know, it, th- this is an example of what they can do. I think it, they've got a very promising future. Oh, absolutely. I couldn't agree more. And let me add, you know, you were saying about can they play their own instruments? What are they doing? You know, I was listening to both the Regrets album and the Linda Lindas for a week uh, before I read uh, any reviews about it. And it's almost as if a lot of our peers are apologizing that these young women have picked up guitars. Because guitars, you know, like Rigs of Dad, the Instagram uh, account. That's what, you know, the 50-year-old guys in the back uh, of the room care about guitars. No, no. I mean, these were the instruments that they were excited to play and that excitement the anger uh the camaraderie the joy comes through loud and clear and if you got a problem with them playing guitars they'll show you a thing or two
called Anxieties from the third Regrets album called Further Joy. We go back with this band a bit, Jim. Yes. Uh, we had them on the show in 2018, uh, show number 645. Well, and, and their uh, debut album, Feel Your Feelings, Fool, with the exclamation <laughs> point, was my record of the year in 2017. Indeed it was. The founder of the band, co-founder of the band, and the main songwriter and the main voice in the band is one Lydia Knight, School of Rock, proud School of Rock graduate. <laughs> yep, yep. Uh, formed the band in 2015 uh, when she was still in her teens, much like uh, the Linda Lindas. She wrote a song that has put her on the map and still uh, a signature tune, a living human girl. Mm-hmm. Got signed to Warner Brothers, you know? <laughs> I mean, Major label. I think we got a future here. We got a songwriter. She, she put out three really great songs on her own and they got signed to Warner Brothers saying let's let's make an album there hence uh, 2017 feel your feelings full yep. with the exclamation point uh, a, a well done burst of adolescent energy combined with a, a level of craftsmanship that again maybe not expected of a teenage uh, songwriter and already a level of sophistication uh, showing up in in the craftsmanship in that record uh, the follow-up of 2019, How Do You Love, a song cycle about the breakup of a relationship that Lydia was in. Uh, then the lockdown occurred. They, had, yeah. She had apparently written an entire album and was ready to put it out. And then when the pandemic hit, uh, everything got put on hold. She scrapped that entire album. Mm-hmm. And I think what we're seeing here in the third album is basically an assessment of where she's at. She's now 21. She turned 21 last October. Uh, with her quartet and, uh, you know, sort of a, 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 a growing experience, uh, it, for lack of a better term, and what's going on in this third album. We're going to talk about it in a minute. Here's a track we're going to play first, though. It's called Monday from the Regrets on Sound Opinions. Open my door, I step between my clothes, can't find the floor, yeah, it's been That is The Regrets with Monday from album number three, Further Joy. You know, Greg, this is an interesting record. Mm -hmm. Uh, At first, I was put off by it because it is The Regrets pop album, okay? Much more produced than the two predecessors, uh, much more dance-oriented or just kind of glossy, mainstream uh, pop-oriented. But there is this startling contrast between the lyrics and the music. 
the music is joyful. Mm-hmm. Uh, it may uh, let you down if you were expecting a third garage rock punk album from The Regrets. But when you realize that what Lydia is singing about, well, the very first track, Anxieties, mm-hmm. Out of Time, she is talking about uh, anxiety and the pressure uh, that she has felt uh, from social media, from peers, and I guess from her day job here, uh, being a young rock star. Uh, existential crisis is a word that comes up again and again and again. Mm. And it's not like uh, just thrown out there without anything behind it. Uh, let's face it, we were all in existential crises in the midst of the pandemic. Mm-hmm. That's where Lydia was. In between, there are moments of great humor and uh, reminding herself, it seems like uh, we've uh, reviewed a couple dozen albums over the course of uh, this this never-ending pandemic that were like, what do we do? We're trapped at home. Right. Let's dance around. That right. was your line, right? <laughs> like, let, let's at least mm-hmm. dance and let out this energy mm-hmm. and remember that there are things in life worth living. And that's what's happening here. When she's singing to the object of a crush in You're So Blank and Pretty. In the bathroom, you fix your face, but I think you're so pretty, you take my breath away. And when she's singing la-di-da, because she has nothing else to say. It's just uh, an incredibly infectious hook. Uh, I think it, it is a departure, but I think it's a rewarding one if you give it more than half a listen uh, and set aside your expectations of what you think Lydia Knight is going to give you. Well, I'm with you on the my initial assessment of the record. I was let down, uh, and maybe I'm the one with the problem. I'm carrying all the baggage into this record, listening to it, well, expecting uh, one thing and getting another. That line right? I used earlier about the 50-year-old guy in the back of the room wanting <laughs> guitar, that was from a Lydia interview. Right, and, and and to an extent, she's saying, "I want to, I want to make that guy happy too." You know, right, uh, right, you right. Know, she's she's kind of saying, "I, I, I don't want to be pigeonholed." And I think the Linda Lindas, uh, right away, right out of the box, were saying, "Don't pigeonhole us. Don't tell us we're this thing. We can do these yeah. other things too." Um, Lydia Knight was showing uh, this on the last record, the the one that came out in uh, 2019. How do you love? She was already referencing things like doo-wop and a little bit of cure and yes. you know, a sleeker sound with some strings. And, and, and she's expanding that here once again. Uh, working with Jack Knife Lee, I'm thinking, uh-oh, this could be a problem. You know, um, I mean, he's worked with Taylor Swift. He's worked with One Direction. I'm hearing a lot of Paramore influences in both Paramore. Linda Linda's and mm. The Regrets right now. Huh. Paramore been around for two decades. Yeah. That pop rock sound. You know, uh, is very influential now, I think, on a new wave of young uh, singer-songwriters. And I'm hearing it in this record. I'm hearing it in the Linda Linda's record. I I got a better comparison for you. You know what the turning point for me was to to stop, like, stop with the expectations, Jim, and listen to this record? Um, The Go-Go's Vacation album which was a great album, but it didn't have that that exact same drive and, right. and punk edge that the first album had. You know, we interviewed two of the Go-Go's right. over the last uh, couple of years, Kathy Valentine, Gina Shock. Um, you know, it's like, oh, yeah, 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 right. They, they can have fun, too. That's that's exactly right. And, uh, you know, I think there is, a, you know, anxiety is the name of the one of the songs. She's dealing with anxiety issues. Yeah. And and also she came out, you know, by, as bisexual mm-hmm. uh, in the last couple of years, and, and she's kind of owning up to that as well. That's what you're you know, so blank and pretty is about exactly so i, I she's they're, they're dealing with some real issues about growing up and becoming a young adult and at the same time with this exuberant overlay 
you know, Lydia Knight is one of those songwriters that you could see putting out records, you know, in her mid-30s and her early 40s and people still listening to them because she's being very honest about where she is in her life. And uh, people are going to grow up with her songs in the same way, I think. Well, you know, both of these bands are standing on the shoulders of giants. And I mean, like, Joan Jett, Mm -hmm. you know? And and I think they're going to have that kind of sustaining career. So that's what we think of uh, the Linda Lindas and the Regrets. Now we want to hear from you, our listeners. Uh, Let us know what you thought of these records. Leave us a voice message at our website, soundopinions.org. Coming up, a conversation with the guys from Devo. That's in a minute on Sound Opinions. Welcome back to Sound Opinions. I'm Jim DeRogatis. My partner is Greg Cott. This week, we're talking with two of the founding members of Devo, Mark Mothersbaugh and Jerry Casale. Formed in Akron, Ohio in 1973, the band's released nine studio albums, and of course, they had a huge hit with the 1980 single, Whip It. But Greg, something we both loved about Devo from the very beginning is their devotion to zigging where everyone else zagged. Well, everybody was trying to outdo each other in the in the late 70s with how uh, weird they could get, and Devo mm-hmm. still stood out, you know, whether it was their sound or their clothes. I mean, these guys made an impression that still sticks with me to this day. I can still remember seeing them on Saturday Night Live. Yes. Going, Holy... You know, what is that? Deconstructing the Rolling Stones' satisfaction and saying this is something new. Exactly. And uh, they've always stayed true to that ideal. Now let's welcome Mark Mothersbaugh and Jerry Casale to Sound Opinions. Welcome, guys. Hello there. Yes. It's a pleasure to have you here. Let's start with the most recent news. I know the mayor of Akron, Ohio, is really excited about the Rock and Roll (laughs) Hall of Fame. Um, he's like pushing for you guys to get voted in to explain you guys have been on the ballot the final ballot the last couple of years right and um, I did in fact vote for you I have a I, I took a picture of my uh, ballot before I mailed it in so you can confirm that I'll, <laughs> I'll send it over to you but uh, is this at all on your radar is this something you guys care about Jerry and Mark do you care that Devo is getting recognition by this museum on, in Cleveland Sure. You know, it's a, it's, there's something nice about that. You know, there's something nice about being recognized for what we've done. And, you know, we might not have been the most cliche rock and roll band there was, but I think what we brought to the mix was something maybe a little more thought out and had, had some, uh, maybe some deeper meaning to it. Yeah. And the, the, the influence, the resonance uh, lives on. I just have to insert that he gets to vote for the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. I worked for eight and a half months at Rolling Stone, got fired for panning Hootie and the Blowfish. I got to vote once, and then I've been blacklisted ever since. <laughs> but I'd have voted for you. I'd have voted for Kraftwerk a lot earlier, too. Right? Well, you know, we we keep getting threatened to get recognized. We'll see if we do that. <laughs> um, I mean, Jan Winter's gone, and John yeah. Sykes is in, and so the new regime has to do with the birth of MTV, and certainly Devo supplied the fuel for that birth. Absolutely. You, you guys anticipated a lot of things with the with the band you created. I don't know if people know your entire backstory, but it's amazing. You both were students at Kent State, correct? Yeah. Uh, in, in Ohio in the, in the 70s, and you were there when the shootings occurred. The National Guard swooped in. There were student protests over the Vietnam War. 
Uh, I believe you both were part of that protest, right? You were out on the campus ca- protesting when, when this violence we were occurred? All, I wasn't there for the violence. Jerry was there the day of the violence. Uh, I was there the day, two days before, when, when there was a march on um, the recruiting center downtown, and I was part of that. And then my brother Bob was part of the one when uh, the Razi building got burnt down on campus, FBI agents came over to our house and scared my mom with photographs of him burning an American flag, I think it was. Well, you know that what that day was about, you guys, right? It was Nixon had expanded the war into Cambodia from, uh, from Vietnam without an act of Congress. Back then, back then, people were outraged at the corruption of the, uh, of the separation of powers in the three branches of government, and they were informed. So students were the most informed. And so I was a member of SDS. Myself and other anti-war factions organized that protest that day against what Nixon had done. That's what it was. But what it really was, was <laughs> collusion between the right-wing governor, Rhodes, and the head of the university. It was an ambush, basically, to get the students all in one place and then arrest them by declaring martial law on campus. And that's what led to uh, the ambush with live ammunition, which none of us could have anticipated. And I just lucked out because I was closer to the guard than a lot of the kids that got shot. And I think the guard shot over our heads on purpose because they were the same age as us and they could see us. And so they probably didn't have it in them to just really kill an unarmed student straight on. So they shot past us, killed everybody in the parking lot behind us. I've always thought a great underrated work of literary journalism, Greg, is that Mickner book about Kent State. Mm-hmm. And then he interviewed all these student journalists, and he had, you know, it was one of the first great oral histories, I recall. But a formative event for both of you in the fact that it made you uh, skeptical of what the government was telling you, skeptical of government, period, kind of the birth of this notion of devolution, right? Yeah. It was a bigger skepticism than just the government. It was it was about humans and what we were doing here on the planet. You were art students, and you were in film and literature and music. All of this was swirling around the campus. And I know that you guys were both involved in music in some way before this, but was forming a band on your radar is something that you were thinking about at all prior to the, the Kent State killings? I was trying to start a band, but not Devo. I When I came to Kent, I learned about people like John Cage, and I learned about the Dadaists and and things like Ballet Mechanique and the Futurists in Italy uh, that were saying that modern orchestra does not contain the instruments capable of creating sounds to represent our current culture properly. And I kind of thought, yeah, I want to update that. I was looking at people like Sun Ra, and we were both Captain Beefheart fans, and and I liked the idea of like pounding a, a synthesizer with your fists and making <laughs> explosion <laughs> rockets and things yeah. like that. Yeah. And um, Jerry, mm-hmm. well, he can tell you, but he he was a bass player in a, in a band and he was playing blues. And so it was kind of this combination musically of two things that actually complemented each other really well. And then from a conceptual point of view, we were just both really disappointed with humans and what they were doing on this planet. You know, I, I'd read a book called The Population Bomb in, in 1969 that said humans are multiplying at such a fast rate that we'll have stripped the planet of all 
of all of the resources by the year 2050, and a virus will probably remove humans from the planet. <laughs> <laughs> funny, funny book in, in retrospect. It was called um, The Beginning Was the End, How Man Came Into Being Through Cannibalism by what we found out to be a, an ex-Nazi <laughs> philosopher, Oscar Kiss Mayarth. It, it basically redefined evolutionary theory into this theory about how brain-eating apes that became psychotic and lost their uh, ESP function in their tails and hair became humans and that their brains grew faster than their capacity of the cranium to contain them. And so they were psychotic and out of touch with nature and had to try to control nature because they couldn't live in harmony anymore with nature. And we loved that because it was a crackpot theory, but of course it was 280 pages of quote proof. And we thought, you know what? <laughs> this is better than the Bible and better than Darwin. At least it's mm -hmm. the bridge between creationists and rosy-cheeked evolutionists that keep saying that there's progress and things are getting better. And we thought, no, there's a dark side to human that always seems to win. You know, there's a duality, the Jekyll and Hyde duality, and the bad, the bad part always wins out. And that's what we saw, the stupidity winning out. So we're looking around and, and we're realizing the word de-evolution is showing up other places, including in um, anti-evolution uh, diatribes from the Christian. All those yeah. things gave us focus <laughs> and gave us a reason to talk about hu humans as possibly the unnatural species on the planet. prescient and ahead of your time, thought-wise, you guys always were. Duty Now for the Future, 1979, comes with this press release from the desk of the general that says, you may not be aware of this, but we are in the middle of World War III. We must fight back. We must know what we want. Wow. That could have been written five minutes ago. Yeah, I was writing for the general back then. <laughs> but we we knew that world war three probably wouldn't be fought with you know icbms that would annihilate the planet that it was really going to be a war for the mind itself for human consciousness like how are you going to organize yourself and that's what you see now and it's going to be like wwf you know like world wrestling federation where you got nato and the western countries and then you got china and russia and it will be this endless smackdown between the two ways to think about organizing human energy. Yeah, you know, it's it's a page out of 1984. It's whose reality is real. Despite this very dark worldview that you formulated, I don't know, beautiful is the right word, but it was it was art. You were making art. You made stuff. It, it's almost like you're telling it's like we're depressed and it's the world is ending. And yet we're making this amazing stuff out of it. We're, we're still creating in the midst of all that. So that seemed to be like a defiant protest in itself. You know, we weren't parasites and we weren't opportunists. We were contributing in a creative way by responding to the what we saw and, and what bothered us. Either you become the weatherman and start going underground and, you know, blowing up banks or you become Devo. <laughs> <laughs> was there a kinship in those early days with what was happening in Cleveland? I've seen you guys talk at various points, but, uh, you know, with uh, Rocket from the Tombs and then we have Peruwu, of course, with Lochner and uh, David Thomas. Uh, was that kind of inspiring? 
Well, we were aware of them. They were aware of us. But I have to tell you that mostly it was the press creating this community. The community didn't really exist. It was really fragmented. And and I remember that Dave, we liked Perugu, right, right Mark? Yeah. We liked them. But, you know, Dave Thomas, was that his name? He had nothing to say but snarky, nasty things about Devo. You know, it was that petty and kind of parochial, you know, provincial. You catch David on a, on a bad day. He has nothing but snarky, nasty but, things to you say. You know, I everything. think a lot of it was also he was intimidated by by the fact that we had so much content. That's my feeling is that he was kind of taken back by that. And he spun way out into the out into the atmosphere, you know. Yeah. I think his first the first songs that they did were their best stuff. That's almost true of any band. <laughs> their first stuff is the best and then and then it devolves. But well, they kind of like exploded and turned into this like strange gas out in the, out in the air and they they became very strange and became less less connected and we kind of went the other way we decided that the way for us to survive was through subversion and so we we thought our concepts and our and what we were about our manifesto was strong enough that we could go out to uh, the west coast and look for a record deal was the whole package intact right from the get-go in terms of the image the way you presented yourselves because you really were a multimedia creation before that became a thing. Since we labored in obscurity in basements and garages in Akron for like almost four years, it actually worked to our advantage because, yes, when we came out, we were pretty much fully formed. We had the 10-minute film. We had the stage presentation. We had a body of work. We had the yellow suits. We had the movements and the, and the manifesto. And it was like people didn't have a chance to pick us apart because it was definitely a solid almost military drill team and that that really worked because it was overwhelming to people what was the audience response to what you were doing polarizing you know hated us threatened us right there were people that would jump on stage and go you calling me a monkey and then there were also people that were going (laughs) okay i saw this band last night they put up a sheet in front of the stage they played some movies they made of them playing songs they took the sheet down and then they played the songs they didn't look at all like uh, a band they were wearing hazmat outfits or something and they ripped them off and then they had another outfit underneath and you got to go see that you know and so from the first show that we played in new york all of a sudden it turned into um everybody was on our guest list there was you know the jack nicholson's the dennis hopper zappa's band um Bowie, Eno, everybody wanted to be on our guest list. Uh, John Lennon was at our second show in New York. You guys somehow, against all odds, became hip. (laughs) When we come back, we'll talk about Devo's creative use of synths and analog technology and what it was like to count Neil Young and Mick Jagger as fans in the early days of the band. That's in a minute on Sound Opinions. And we're back. This week, we're chatting with Jerry Casali and Mark Mothersbaugh of Devo. Let's get back to the conversation. I want to ask you a geeky question, Uh, Mark. You mentioned banging on the synthesizers. The initial wave of analog synths are so magical, and I still hear a lot of that kind of influence in your soundtrack work, even if you might be doing all digital now. Because, you know, what, what was amazing about those early synthesizers was uh, you turn a knob and you didn't know what you were going to get. 
right? They could surprise you. Right. But at the same time, they were much more user-friendly than later on with like, once it got into algorithms and, and other things, it's just people started just giving up trying to make their own sounds after a certain point. And uh, they just used the pre-programmed sounds that came with the synth. It's easier to hit yeah, the button. But, but the old, yeah. it's like, I, I still use them and, and you have to be careful because when you write it, you have to make sure that three weeks later when you're recording it, it's all in, in the same tuning. And everything. That was the problem, right? You could you could have a happy accident and then never find that great sound. Well, oh yeah, no two shows were ever alike. To this day. And then we couldn't even read. <laughs> We couldn't repeat the demo sounds either. I mean, Mark would find some incredible sound on a Moog and we'd base a song around the sound like Smart Patrol with the kind of rising arpeggiated, you know, sweep that had a certain period to it. Even, even today when I'm still, when we do those songs, I'm singing a song and I'm thinking in my head at the same time, okay, the next one I have to have all these sets, I have to turn the mini mode to all these different places. So it's still that same thing a little bit. You know, Smart Patrol still sounds like a floppy pancake at the beginning sometimes. And then it's closer <laughs> to it by the middle of the song. And sometimes it's just what you get when you when you use that gear. Piggybacking on what uh, Jim said, you became hip. Eno produces your first record. Uh, Mick Jagger uh, listens to your cover of Satisfaction and says, that's pretty cool. You go ahead and do that. Neil Young wants to jam with you guys. He's a huge fan before, before the rest of the world really even knows you. And in fact, I guess the earliest version of My My Hey Hey, uh, Rock and Roll is Here to Say, was done with you guys. What was that like, running into these, having these heritage acts flocking to you and saying you're the you're the coolest thing well it's gratifying gratifying that creative people that we liked liked and, us. and it was extreme because we went from maybe a few weeks before that being told after we did our first set at a club in ohio being told okay you you're done now we go oh no we got another set for you and they go no 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 you're done <laughs> well they paid us to quit and then we went and took the money and and got hamburgers and uh cokes and laughed all night about it, thought we were really triumphant because the people that hated us, we didn't like either. So it encouraged us to uh, keep doing what we were doing. It's like, if they hate us, let's keep doing this. You, you didn't at all solicit this attention. These people, these famous people came to you and said, we want to work with you or we want to do these things with you. I mean, uh, Neil Young just doesn't work with anybody. You know? Right. I, I watched that video again the other day and it's still mind-blowing. It's just like... <laughs> Oh my God, they, they got away with this. I mean, a Neil Young album like Trans that everybody didn't understand is like, okay, he was doing this four years before with Debo. So what was that experience like with Neil? Was that track just sort of presented to you? It was part of this ongoing human highway project that was the movie that kept morphing. And Boogie Boy was featured. Right. I think he showed us the song. I could be wrong. I might have gotten it the day before, but I think like lyrics, we just saw the day of the show or something. Uh, it was about Johnny Rotten. Sex Pistols had just broken up like a day or two before that. And uh, somehow th th they came over to this house where most of Devo was staying that night. So we had T-shirts from them and, 
and uh, different things that we ended up wearing in uh, Neil's movie. So it's pretty incredible. The the copyright laws, I guess, were that you actually had to get the approval right. of Mick Jagger and the Rolling Stones to cover Satisfaction on your yeah. debut album. Yeah, intellectual property was taken seriously back then. We almost didn't get permission to use Secret Agent Man. Because all we did is we, we wrote a whole new song, and then we, at the end of the chorus, we went, Secret Agent Man, Secret Agent Man, take away my name. That's the only thing we used out of his song. And uh, the rest of it was all a brand new song, but he didn't, he didn't like it. And luckily, somebody in Japan accidentally signed off permission for us to do the cover. And um, How difficult was it to get the Stones to sign? They were easy. We went to New York. Jerry and I went to New York and went to Peter Rudge's office. Mick came in and we played him the song and he started dancing. Danced around like Mick Jagger saying, I like it. I like it. <laughs> How much did Eno add to uh, the debut album? A lot. He was really a, a patron saint in a way. You know, it's like if we didn't have money from anywhere else, he was willing to put up his own money to take us to to uh, Germany, to this electronic studio that was in a place called Neunkirchen. Where we find ourselves working with Connie Planck, who turns out to be famous. Yeah. yeah. A god. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. The whole producer behind the Krautrock movement, right? Fine, fine Noi documentary. And, yeah. yeah, the documentary is good. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, really good. Eno and Bowie, they, they recorded extra tracks. Um, maybe someday Eno would say, Hey, let me mix it how I was going to mix it because we kept like pulling his things back. But he, there are a number of synthesizer, guitar, and and vocal tracks. We kept some of them in, in the like uh, uncontrollable urge has uh, Eno and Bowie singing backups along with uh, Bob and Jerry. Some of the other songs, there's things like, you know, put a synth sound that we used in Too Much Paranoia is something in Giacomo. There were other things, too. So I'm... You're a, a cruel, cruel man, Mark, because you know what hearing that is going to do to the super fans. They're pulling out their hair right now. How do I get this? Whatever. How can I live without this? <laughs> <laughs> You know, you guys have been incredibly frank about the experience of recording for a major label. One of my all-time favorite quotes about the industry, Mark, uh, you said, uh, we knew we were stepping into a sewer. We just didn't know how bad it stunk. <laughs> well, you know, um, uh, yeah, you know, we were warned about what it was going to be like to sign a record deal. But we really felt like what we were talking about and the fact that a lot of it, if we made it less overt that we were what we were doing, you know, if we pulled it back a ways from the Captain Beefheart and the, the Sun Ra kind of craziest sounds and then it, and made it more palatable commercially, it was, you know, like a subversion to get our information to the kids. And it works brilliantly. But the double-edged sword of something like Whip It becoming such a huge hit is the record company says now, okay, now you do this more. <laughs> well, yeah, certainly because they finally thought they understood us and could point to something that made money. But, but it's just all predictable. You don't look to those, those people for ideas, you know. Believe me, uh, we fictionalized our experience, you know, in, in the little interstitial films I made and the character of Rod Reuter. Everything he said was said to us. And I just 
remembered it and wrote it down. I didn't make up any of the lines. Couldn't so make up stuff that great. Exactly. Like, I can forgive you guys for being artists, but I can't forgive you for being stupid. <laughs> <laughs> that was right in an A&R man's office at Warner Brothers. I think some people may have dismissed you initially as a novelty, like this is going to last six months, like they did with the Beatles or something, you know, like that same thing. They, they said the same thing about anything that was new. But how did you, and obviously you were both students of pop culture and, and music, and you probably understood all the potential pitfalls. If you have a career, it could end overnight because something new comes along a year later and you, you become, you know, old hat. How did you address that? And it is sim similarly with Whippet becoming sort of a novelty single. Now whip it. You know, it's the one-hit wonder syndrome. You overcame a lot of these things to sustain what is now like a 40-plus year career, basically. We just kept changing because we were an experimental art collective, so it didn't occur to us to just write another whip. It wouldn't, I mean, it made no sense to us because we were moving on to some other ideas and other sounds, and they didn't understand that. We thought we could do something as good as whip it that didn't sound exactly like whip it. And, and, you know, okay, Whippet was maybe a, the whoopee cushion. You keep bringing up the novelty. But, you know, whoopee cushions are still being made. So it never gets old. <laughs> we're the novelty that, yeah, persisted. In terms of Devo, obviously, you know, you've cut back on the number of recordings you're releasing regularly. You're, you both are doing other work. What is the status of Devo now? Where do you see that going? Uh, are, are, is there more stuff that you'd like to get out? Is there another re recording that you'd like to do? Well, as far as I'm concerned, Devo could do a lot of things. To, and there was many more ideas and plans than what you saw. And it could still be done. It goes way beyond whether you record a record or not. We have an idea right now that Mark's really excited about. That's the audio version of what the CryptoPunks did visually. It's, it's, what would you call it, Mark? It's progressive variations on a song where AI programs rearrange your song so that everybody that buys one gets a different version of your song, no, no two were alike. It's a little bit like a mutating virus, but you think about that while you're writing it, and you think about that while you're putting together musical pieces and lyrics. You write your lyrics so that they can be moved around and the same with the music it's a whole another way to think about writing music as an art form so and it's giving into the technology and letting it take over and but you planned to let it take over so it's on right. purpose these mutations are on purpose and it's kind of like going all the way back to burroughs cut-ups except for now you've given us something to look forward to something new we expected nothing less of Devo. We have been talking to Jerry Casali and Mark Mothersbaugh. It has been a complete honor to talk to the two co-founders of Devo. Thank you, gentlemen, for being on the show. Oh, thanks for having us. Thank you. That wraps up our chat with Mark Mothersbaugh and Jerry Casali of Devo. But as always, we want to hear from you. Do you have a favorite song or memory of Devo? Leave us a voice message on our website, soundopinions.org.
That, of course, is the theme song for the Desert Island Jukebox, Jim. Has been from day one. From day one. I'm Stranded by the Saints, all-time great Australian punk band. The reason we are playing it in this particular part of the show is for a very sad reason. The, the, the singer on that song, the founder of the Saints, uh, Chris Bailey, died April 9th at the age of 65. Another shocker, where did that come from, you know? Yeah. Um, what a band. I mean, uh, the Australian punk scene basically began with the saints um and it was interesting because that song was released as a single the the band had to self-release it because they couldn't get a record deal in australia in 1976 so they put it out themselves uh it ended up becoming a hit in the uk which Mm -hmm. was just experiencing its own little punk scene so that song came out three months before the clash and the sex pistols put out their debut records yeah i mean the, the saints were uh priming the punk scene in the UK the way that Patti Smith Band was in the U.S. Mm-hmm. And, and Chris Bailey and Ed Cooper, the uh, guitarist in the band, they were a, a, a formidable combo uh, as songwriters um, and put out a string of really outstanding records and the initial burst of punk. Uh, you know, the band relocated to the U.K., but they were always wedded to that Australian scene mm-hmm. from the very start. People like Nick Cave and... Uh, Uh, Michael Hutchins talked about them as really important influences on why they started playing music. Uh, Michael Hutchins, of course, with NXS. With NXS. I've seen a wonderful photo of a very young, maybe not even shaving yet, uh, Nick Cave, like looking in awe at Chris Bailey. Revering them, uh, and uh, and with good reason. It was was a great band. Uh, I'm Stranded is, is an absolutely... You know, king size anthem, one of the 500 great songs of all time in rock and roll. You know, without a doubt. And uh, anytime you talk about punk rock, you got to include that as well. Their entire debut album, uh, 1977, "I'm Stranded," uh, named after the song, uh, is is a classic. Uh, they put out two more albums in 1978, uh, "Eternally Years" and "Prehistoric Sounds," and then they sort of petered out a little bit because uh, Cooper left the band. There was a lot of infighting in the band at that point because, you know, they, they really weren't getting the recognition yeah. they thought they deserved. And even creative, though they were making great music. differences. Right. <laughs> but, but Bailey stuck it out with the band. He made like a dozen records with the Saints mm-hmm. uh, up until 2012. Cooper had his own uh, solo career going. Uh, they would collaborate over the years occasionally. Uh, Bailey also put out solo records as well. So they both were very prolific throughout the years. And, you know, Bailey was asked about the fact that the band wasn't uh, gigantic. Uh, and he said, I love it out here. I don't want to be that. I never got into it to get famous, and I'm not in it now to get famous. I'm in, in, in it to make great music. And yeah. he very much accomplished that goal. What I love is uh, I'm Stranded sort of established this sound. And with the second record, right away, they were introducing soul influences and yeah. a, lot of, a lot of stacks elements, the mm-hmm. horn section that came in on the band. And you can really hear it here uh, on the song I, I Want to Play Here from uh, the second record, the 1978 Eternally Yours record. It's called Know Your Product, which I see, Jim, as sort of a missing link between 
uh, the Stones' satisfaction and yep. X-ray specs adolescent. Uh, oh, germ-free adolescent. <laughs> germ-free yeah, yeah, adolescence. Yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, no, you know, I, the soul thing can't be emphasized enough. I remember a criticism that Dave Marsh uh, made of the initial punk movement in the and the Ramones in particular. You know, scoffing that they had removed all the blues from rock, huh, right? Yeah. And I think, uh, the, the you know, the Saints uh, were putting back the soul, the blues, mm-hmm. uh, the R&B uh, with gusto. And, you know, Bailey's later career and the later Saints albums moved more in that direction. Many people uh, who, who uh, came in with those first couple of records uh, said he really became the Van Morrison of his generation. That's true. In, in terms of uh, uh, songwriting and, the you know, the, the kind of soulful and the mystic into the mystic thing, right? Right. You know, but, you know, in my opinion, it never got better. Uh, it, there were other great moments, but it never got better than I'm Stranded and Know Your Product. And here's Know Your Product from the Saints in tribute to Chris Bailey, uh, dead at the age of 65 on Sound Opinions. I'm just sitting in my chair when a buzz comes on and yes, don't you try it. Yeah. You feel all right. Got some green, you brown and smokes. Chill your head and clear your throat. Know your product. If those horns don't get you moving, you may have passed away. (laughs) (laughs) Great, great song. What do we have on the show next week, Mr. Cotton? Jim, uh, life during wartime. We're going to talk with two uh, bands and artists who uh, are deeply involved in conflict uh, throughout their entire careers. It's been influencing the way they make music from Poland, Trupa Trupa, and uh, an interview with uh, Tamar Afek from Israel as well. Don't forget to check out our weekly bonus podcast. For more sound opinions, listen to our podcast wherever you find such things. The views, thoughts, and opinions expressed in this program belong solely to sound opinions and not necessarily to Columbia College Chicago or our sponsors. Thanks, as always, to our Patreon supporters. Sound Opinions is produced by Andrew Gill, Alex Claiborne, our associate producer, Sol Delgadillo, and our intern, Mary Bernthal. Our social media consultant is Katie Cotton.